This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. What is the state of EMV in the U.S.? In February, the Smart Card Alliance released a white paper about routes the United States might take if it moves to EMV. As EMV compliance deadlines take effect in neighboring Canada, how will U.S. card issuers, merchants, and other entities touching the payment space be affected? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Randy Vanderhoof, Executive Director of the Smart Card Alliance, a not-for-profit, multi-industry association of more than 180 member firms in North America and Latin America. Randy, the Smart Card Alliance recently issued a white paper about the state of EMV and the options the U.S. might consider on its path to a more secure payment card technology. Can you tell us a little bit about this white paper and what it includes? The white paper, from what I understand, is a roadmap, if you will, that has four considerations the U.S. should look at when exploring a move to the EMV standard, such as convergence of EMV with NFC mobile payments, as well as the use of PIN over signature. The paper notes card interface, card authentication, transaction authorization, and cardholder verification. So I just thought maybe we could explore those different options. Sure, Tracy, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Um, The Smart Card Alliance Payments Council, which is an active stakeholder group made up of uh, the payment brands, issuers, processors, terminal manufacturers, um, integrators, and some consultants, all who have been very involved in the rollout of contactless payments in the U.S. uh, recently in terms of discussions around mobile payments and such, um, felt that it was time to take a fresh look at the different approaches to EMV that fit all aspects of the U.S. market. And the U.S. market has got some things about it that make it unique and different from uh, some of the other markets that have already adopted EMV. And we wanted to make sure that we were considering all of those variable options and relating them to how the the U.S. market might uh, deal with that. In addition to looking at the technology options, Um, We wanted to recognize the maturity that's taken place with the technology and the availability of EMV-ready payments infrastructure already in place in the U.S., and noting that it would be much less complicated and more cost-effective to migrate now to EMV than it would have been a decade ago when some of the earlier assessments and and, um, uh, estimates of, of cost were factored in. Now, can you provide a little insight into some of the considerations that are highlighted in this white paper or roadmap and why the Alliance deems the four that I mentioned earlier to be the most critical consideration, card interface, card authentication, transaction authorization, and cardholder verification? Sure, absolutely. To to put it into context, we first uh, approached the paper by by looking at the global deployment of VMV and um, using that as a reference point for the possible roadmap options for the U.S. market. We also provided uh, a primer on the EMV security specifications related to card authentication methods, card verification methods, and transaction authorization and implementation options so that people understood what the toolkit that EMV payments was all about before we got into discussing how those different components of that toolkit might be implemented here in the U.S. Um, we also wanted to, 
pay attention to the relationship between EMV and other payment technologies that are out, such as contactless payments, near-field communications, um, the role and impact of the PCI rules for data security and and, and encryption technology and, and other things that have been recently introduced in the in the payments market, and get an overview of all of the changes that are required for the issuing, the acquiring, um, the merchant acceptance and ATM networks, so that uh, people had a had an understanding of just what the scope and scale is of. Uh, what an EMV adoption might look like in the United States without being prescriptive to, dis to suggesting that it should be one particular way or the other. In order to do that in an effective manner, um, we chose the four main elements that we felt were going to highlight the changes that EMV payments are over the traditional magnetic stripe payments. So when we looked at those four you know, card interface being the most obvious because we're no longer relying on the magnetic stripe. We're now using an embedded chip that will operate either as a contact-only chip, a contactless chip, or a dual technology chip. We explained what those different options look, were like and, and what that might mean in terms of uh, the implementation choices that uh, the market was facing. Card authentication is, is another major factor because Card authentication determines how the industry protects itself against fraudulent cards. So there's a number of techniques that have been deployed that involve the way we authenticate the card to the terminal and the terminal to the card. Um, terms like SDA and DDA are, are used and explained in the in the uh, the document, and it was important for people to understand the differences of those. From the transaction authorization perspective. Uh, we wanted to uh, explore the differences between an online-only transaction authorization environment or some combination of online and offline, which you may know has been deployed outside of the U.S. market. Today, the U.S. market is 100% or roughly online-only, and if we were going to choose to implement an EMV migration that was also online-only, then that would create another set of choices in terms of the type of technology and the cards and the readers and the systems that would be implemented, which would impact both the business case as well as the cost of implementing these technologies. So it's very important uh, to consider the transaction authorization methods. And then the last, but certainly not the least, was the cardholder verification techniques. And here in the U.S., you know, we operate on a signature basis for cardholder authentication, and most of the EMV world has adopted a chip and PIN or a PIN-based authentication method. So we wanted to explain that there are even options within choosing PIN or no PIN in the EMV specs, and there could be an online PIN or an offline PIN or potentially even no PIN and, and relying on signature and what that might mean for the market if we were to choose any one of those options. Now, I'm going to go back to one of the things that you talked about earlier, Randy, and that's the notion of contactless payments. When we talk about contactless or RFID transactions, 
we actually have two options and I don't think that we really differentiate the options as often at least in the US as we should so the two options are a MagStripe contactless option and an EMV option. In the U.S. today, more than 75 million cards use contactless RFID MagStripe data. And it's been suggested that RFID could perhaps bridge the gap between the MagStripe and EMV. Can you help our audience understand the difference between MagStripe RFID and EMV RFID? Yeah, absolutely, Tracy. The adoption and implementation of contactless payments um, really began in the payments industry in the U.S. And in order to uh, facilitate a low-cost and, and fairly non-disruptive implementation, the major brands decided that they would emulate the transaction data elements of the magnetic stripe in order to minimize the amount of changes that would be required in the infrastructure to adopt, which served the U.S. market very well. But other countries started looking at contactless and the success that was um, generated through the U.S. implementation of, of contactless and saw benefits for this technology in an EMV environment as well. Um, the contactless EMV mode uh, would maintain all of the security elements and the differences in the, the data cryptograms and, and dynamic data uh, elements of contact EMV cards or chip and pin cards in a contactless mode. So the term EMV contactless was a, an evolution of the contactless payments standards that were going to be utilized in countries that were already processing EMV. In the U.S. market, we have a roadmap to evolve our contactless MagStripe uh, data cards to an EMV contactless format by changing the components within the card and the data elements that interact with the POS systems. So there is a, a migration path for the 75 million uh, contactless MSD version cards to uh, be accepted and, and work in an EMV environment. But we've also thought that in order to future-proof the technology, should the U.S. actually adopt a full EMV migration, then we would need to have our contactless payment cards um, evolve in terms of how they process to uh, also support the EMV processing standard. And this would be a decision that could be made between the, the card and the terminal if the payment terminal has the ability to accept a contactless EMV transaction and that card has both contactless EMV and contactless MagStripe, it could then make the decision to process the transaction as an EMV model transaction. And likewise, if that terminal or that merchant is still processing MagStripe data, the uh, card that would support both EMV and MagStripe might step down to the MagStripe level of communication uh, for those types of transactions. How might the use of RFID MagStripe technology in the U.S., if it becomes more widely adopted, impact U.S. cardholders when they travel overseas? Yeah, I think there are business rules that can be applied to support that condition, Tracy. Um, you know, today those POS terminals that accept EMV cards um, will also recognize if a non-EMV card is presented and will switch modes to 
reading the magnetic stripe and routing the transaction as a magnetic stripe transaction. So U.S. Um, cardholders traveling overseas with their contactless cards would likely face the same scenario if they present their card to a terminal that's expecting only EMV contactless cards and it sees a MagStripe version um, from a U.S. issuer, then there would be a step down at the terminal level to choose to process that as they, uh, they would normally have processed a, uh, a U.S.-based magnetic stripe-only card. Today, the big problem for U.S. customers traveling overseas is the requirement to have a contact chip for uh, those types of EMV transactions. The link between mobile and EMV also is something that the industry has talked about quite a bit, but it's not something that the paper, the white paper that the Smart Card Alliance put together delves into too deeply. Why did the Alliance feel it was not appropriate to include a deeper discussion about mobile in the paper about EMV? Uh, we took the approach that um, it was better to take smaller bites out of the apple rather than try to delve into all of the different options. Um, so we decided that, that rather than um, add to what is already a 40-page document for people to then absorb all of the variables that mobile devices introduce, that we thought it would be cleaner to, to have a separation of those two discussions and to start to, to, to look at mobile as another project down the road. And Randy, I'd like to ask your opinion about timelines. It seems last summer we were hearing quite a bit about EMV, and perhaps some of that just had to do with the fact that we were writing about EMV more often. But there does seem to be a lull in the discussion and the interest. Does some of that have to do with the current regulatory environment? Are financial institutions in the U.S. Um, and others just waiting to see how legislation such as Dodd-Frank and the Durbin Amendment shake out? Tracy, I would disagree with you that there's been any lull in the discussion or the interest in terms of uh, migration to EMV in the U.S. in the last year. And in fact, we, you know, this time last year there were no EMV cards in the market, and now we have um, EMV cards being issued by the United Nations Federal Credit Union. Um, Travelex, which is now uh, uh, owned by Mastercard, started offering. Uh, prepaid EMV chip and PIN cards for, for U.S. citizens to, to use for international travel. And uh, recently, the um, North Carolina State Employee Credit Union also announced that they're going to be implementing an EMV card. So there's, there's been um, a lot of progress that's been made in the last year, and we're expecting there's going to be even more progress coming um, in 2011. I think the regulatory environment with the discussions around interchange rate and, and the CARD Act and the Durbin Amendment, um, which you've been hearing about and reading about in the media, um, is going to have an impact on, on the market in terms of the rate of, of acceleration towards this, this move in, in EMV. But it's not um, the sole reason for any delay. And in fact, I think that the momentum is still very strong that um, the market is, is ready to move and will start to move quickly. 
talking about the interchange issue, of course, this is a big issue and a big concern. And a move to EMV could impact the fees merchants pay and the percentage of interchange card issuers collect. In other parts of the world where EMV has already experienced widespread adoption, a tiered interchange scale, if you will, has been implemented, one that encourages merchants and issuers to move toward EMV because it is considered to be a more secure technology. Can you explain how that structure has worked in other markets, and do you think that we could perhaps expect to see a similar structure as an incentive here? The, 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 the payment structure and the interchange fees and the relationship between the issuers, the processors, and the merchants um, differ country by country, and it's really unfair to try to generalize about the, the rules and the interchange fees that are um, in place in maybe a country like Turkey or, or um, UK or Australia with, with the U.S. market, because the U.S. market is, has multiple layers of complexity beyond what most other um, countries are are deploying uh, I, I think the um, you know the thing that's 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 accelerated the changeover in uh, countries to EMV has been applying liability shifts on those uh, merchants who uh, would uh, pay a, a penalty if they didn't uh, adopt their uh, their technology soon against the, the timelines that were given. Um, it's it's unlikely in the U.S. because of the the, the size of the market and the um, the fact that there's so many players and and it's difficult to try to get all players to move uh, at the same time when there's you know a, a multi-angled business case for for um, the whole payments processing world that we're going to see any type of broad strokes of a liability shift, at least one that's voluntarily driven by the, uh, the payments brands or the issuers and the merchants themselves. Uh, so, you know, any, there's lots of speculation about what the regulatory environment might ultimately turn out to be, but I think they're all factors towards um, coming up with some um, meaningful consensus across the industry that says we want industry to solve this problem. We, we don't necessarily think that it's um, a good idea to have rules um, put down on the industry, um, you know, without having industry input into the, the, the problems and what those um, approaches for solving those problems would be. I think we're, we're still in the discussion and discovery stage, and I think this has been a healthy debate that's taken place in the marketplace around interchange rates, around security, around who has the responsibility for protecting the payments industry in this market. And before we close, Randy, could you give our audience some final thoughts about considerations for which they should be preparing where EMV is concerned? Uh, this summer could be a turning point, you've suggested, as Canada completes its migration and the single European payments area enforces more stringent policies about non-MagStripe acceptance. The most obvious answer to that question is if I'm a merchant and I'm looking at investing in my acceptance infrastructure, that I should be looking at, at investing in a POS system that's going to accept uh, contactless payments and possibly both contact and contactless payments. It's a very small delta in cost for them to, to upgrade that terminal to support that. And if they do, 
then regardless of what the um, ultimate implementation of the next generation of payments is, they're going to future-proof that investment. If mobile devices start to um, expand in adoption and NFC comes and payments becomes a, a major part of the market, which many expect will happen, then merchants are going to need to have the ability, if they choose to, to support mobile payments, of accepting contactless payments at their retail establishments. Putting a contactless terminal in and then leaving off the um, contact chip option um, may not even be a choice for them because the POS terminals, as they're continuing to evolve their manufacturing processes, are trying to standardize on a common global format for what those terminals look like. So it might ultimately be uh, just thrown in with the investment up front, and then it'll be a matter of software upgrades or changes to how they uh, use those terminals in, in connecting to their back-end acquiring networks that will ultimately change to adopt to whichever of the options that the U.S. choose in terms of contact, contactless, um, offline or online uh, authentication and the type of, uh, of cardholder verification rules that we adopt in terms of PIN or signature or other options that are available. Randy, I'd like to thank you again for your time today. Well, thank you, Tracy. This has been great. Again, we've just heard from Randy Vanderhoof, Executive Director of the Smart Card Alliance. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitt. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.BankInfoSecurity.com.